This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Riley. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. When executives tell me, aren't you saying that employees want to have their cake and eat it too? They want a strong culture and they also want to be flexible and work from wherever. Isn't that oxymoronic? I say, no. If you are dependent on being in person for your culture, then A, it's lazy and B, it's marketing, not a culture. That's expert associate partner Bonnie Dowling. She's here to tell us a way to slow down attrition, catering to what five worker personas are looking for in the workplace. After, we'll hear from Catherine Price, who says fun isn't frivolous, but rather fundamental. She's the author of Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again, and part of our Author Talk series. So, Bonnie, thank you for joining the podcast. I'm excited to be here, Roberta. Thank you for having me. It seems like companies can't find enough workers. They can't fill jobs fast enough. But it also seems like we're seeing lots of people who are still leaving companies at just as great a rate, right? What did our most recent research on this great attrition reveal about these comings and goings? As you're aware, this is our second or even third, if you will, installment of the Great Attrition, Great Attraction research. And this time we surveyed over 13,000 individuals from six different countries. So looking at Australia, Canada, India, Singapore, the UK and the US. And that was across 16 industries and included people across all ages, as well as incomes. And what we found was that you're right. People are continuing to quit their jobs. They're going to different industries. They are leaving the workforce entirely. Things that haven't necessarily changed since our original research, despite the fact that the economy and the world has changed. Which begs the question about what's really going on and the disconnect between employers and employees and why we haven't been able to fix that. So as you mentioned, we've been looking at labor trends, right? Since the onset of COVID-19, are these numbers much different? Are things getting any better? So that's exactly why we did this research, was to understand what those trends were and what was happening, especially as we saw some things happen in the broader economy, things like inflation, things like economic uncertainty overall. But what we've seen is that at least when it comes to worker mentality, it has not caused a change. In August, when we ran this research and a very similar survey, 40% of employees said they were at least somewhat likely to leave their jobs in the next three to six months. When we ran this research again this April, we found that 39.9% were at least somewhat likely to leave their jobs in the next three to six months. Is this true across the board? Is this true across all industries at all levels? Are we seeing variation uh, at at different levels of, of organizations? Certainly there's some variation. What's striking about this trend in particular, if you will, or this fundamental shift that maybe is not a trend, is it is striking across all levels from frontline employees to executives. It's also striking across all industries. Yes, you see higher churn in areas like retail or hospitality that have historically always had a higher churn, but organizations like finance and insurance and some of the more stable spaces, you're seeing high levels of churn as well. And then, Bonnie, in the accompanying report on this great attrition research, 
you and your co-authors mentioned that the tried and true approaches to finding and keeping employees, they just aren't working anymore. Why is that? Compensation is table stakes. So if you are not offering a competitive wage, you're not in the game to start with, but it's not enough anymore. And what we're seeing is that there's different types of people that are looking for different things, especially when we start to look at those who've stepped out of the workforce entirely. And what's interesting right now is that we can't afford to ignore those who have stepped out. Why? Because there's not enough people looking for jobs. There's not enough people in the workforce to fill the number of jobs that we have openings for, at least not in the U.S. So what I think is most fascinating about the most recent great attrition research is that you've identified these worker personas, right, or breakdowns of what different types of workers might be looking for in the workplace and therefore what employers need to do to attract them. I want to talk about them in turn, but first, how did you come up with these personas? So we did a cluster analysis. So we started to look at those who had quit jobs without a job in hand and thus taken a step out. We also looked at those who had quit jobs without a job in hand but returned to the workforce and those who had quit and returned to different industries. So we looked at a variety of people who had left their jobs over the course of the pandemic. And what they said would either bring them back into the workforce, would bring them back to a traditional job within the workforce, or what had brought them back. And that's what allowed us to start to identify these different groups. And what are the different groups, if you could tell our listeners? There's five real personas here. There's the traditionalists, the do-it-yourselfers, the idealists, the caregivers, and others. And then there's the relaxers. So let's start with the traditionalists. Who are they and what are they looking for in the workplace? These are the folks that haven't quit their jobs, generally speaking, during the pandemic. Or if they did quit, they moved immediately into another very traditional job. They're the folks who are motivated by the same things that motivated us in 2017 and 2019. They're dependable for employers looking for folks. They want a clear path to advancement. They want competitive compensation. They want a workplace where they enjoy their colleagues and have inspirational leaders. What's tough about attracting and retaining this type of employee? What's tough about traditionalists is there's not enough of them left. So if we think about how many people have quit their jobs over the course of the pandemic, in the U.S. alone, it's about a third of the workforce. So if you think about that, it means that only about two-thirds are what we would qualify or classify as traditionalists. Given the number of job openings that we have today, which is about double, even in our most recent numbers from June, even those ones point to there being almost double the number of job openings as there are people looking for jobs. That means you have to look beyond the traditionalist employee. They may be easy to attract, they may be easy to recruit, but if there's not enough of them, you can't depend on filling your gaps with only them. And that's why you need to look at the other personas. Right. So let's hear more about the do-it-yourselfers. Who are they? So the do-it-yourselfers, I love this group. They're a group that are still working, but they've gone on to start their own businesses or become contractors or join the gig economy. They tend to be in the 25 to 45-year-old sort of age range. They really value flexibility. They value meaningful work. 
as well as compensation. But to get this group back, you're competing with them because they've created something for themselves that is paying the bills, that is providing them a sense of purpose and gives them all of the flexibility they could ever want because they're their own boss. And so getting them back means that you've got a bit of an uphill battle, but it's also probably the largest group out there. How do companies then compete with this new set of competitors? Right. How do you prove that you're a better boss than someone is to themselves? It's a great question again. And it's going to be a challenge for sure. I would say companies need to lean into their sense of purpose and their mission. They need to really emphasize that. The other thing that companies can offer that is difficult as an individual you know, upstart is thinking through your full benefit package. So not just your compensation, though having a steady compensation approach that is more recession-proof or has the ability to withstand an uncertain economy, that's helpful. And then thinking through what those benefits could look like that could offer something different and more attractive. And beyond that, it's the flexibility. I think one of the key things that individuals get by working for themselves is flexibility. And if I think about when I really started hearing executives talking about employees leaving in droves, it was when they started telling me that they had announced their return to office policy. They thought they were being really flexible by offering things like three days in office, two days work from wherever you want. It just can't be Mondays and Fridays. And they were shocked to see that people were quitting. And the first thing I said was, well, you recognize you're sending the inherent message that you don't trust your employees not to take a four-day weekend when you put in that policy. And they they were a bit confused by that, but got there and started to, to recognize that maybe that wasn't the message they wanted to send to employees that had kept the lights on through the pandemic. But now, as those return to office policies and approaches are starting to materialize, and we see more people and more organizations thinking through what that's going to look like, even if it is going to change and evolve as the virus continues to change and evolve. I think if you don't take into account flexibility and not just flexibility of location, but the time of work, how we work, all of those pieces, you will not be able to attract the do-it-yourselfers back. What are caregivers looking for and who are they? It probably doesn't come as a surprise that flexibility is going to be a very important factor for caregivers. They're predominantly women. They're 18 to 44. They are folks who have children at home or maybe elderly parents, but they need the flexibility in order to live into both their role as a caregiver as well as their role as an employee. And so what we see here are former employees, because these folks are not in the workforce today. They've, they've stepped out if they're in these personas, but they may want to return. They may have enjoyed that sense of purpose and the ability to advance. They may, in fact, even be traditionalists at heart. But what they found over the course of the pandemic was that it wasn't working. It wasn't working to both be a parent or a child with aging parents. It wasn't working to be a caregiver and also an employee. If you think about things like the skyrocketing cost of childcare and how it became so unreliable over the course of the pandemic, and then you think about how many employers have punitive policies in place if you are tardy, 
if you have a absence that's a day of absence, it started not to have the right ROI. We need to be thinking about how we can truly create that flexibility and how we can align the benefit packages that we offer to their needs. So you see the increased provision of childcare, of on-site childcare, of benefits like that. One of the other benefits that I really liked when I spoke with a company recently was thinking about how they could offer house cleaning or landscaping benefits. And their thought was, you know what? A lot of people would enjoy these benefits. It turns out there's a lot of things that we do outside of work that don't give us a great sense of fulfillment or pleasure or joy. And if as employers, we can look at what some of those things are and we can help take those off the plate, we can actually give back some work-life balance and ultimately flexibility to our employees. This next persona also is of particular interest to me because uh, my older son falls, I think, into this this category of the idealist. Who are the idealists and, and what are they looking for? What can companies do to bring them into the fold? It's probably not surprising. Our idealists are our younger folks. They're 18 to 24. Many of them are students. They may be part-timers. They're not encumbered by the same responsibilities that those of us who may be caregivers or well into our careers and have mortgages and other responsibilities, car payments, things like that. They're not worried about those things. So as a result, they're focused on different things. Flexibility remains top of mind for them. Maybe it's to work with their school schedule. Maybe it's to pursue some of their passion areas. We know that the generation entering into the workforce right now Gen Z, or the digital natives, are really thoughtful about the work-life balance piece and not wanting to work forever or work to live. They want to live and also have a job. So the flexibility is really important. So is development and advancement. They want to see that there's a career path there that they can grow. They also want meaningful work. Purpose is very important to this group. The last persona on the list, but by no means the least, or a group that we're calling the relaxers. Can you talk a little bit more about this group? These are the folks that they've taken an early retirement for many of them. It's, it's people who have retired or they're just not looking for work. They don't really have a reason to come back. They've actually said, we're not interested. We're, we're out. But we also know that there's things that could bring them back. And we know that given the gap that we have, we do need to figure out a way to bring them back. And so what are they looking for? They're looking for something that is purpose-driven, maybe relates to a legacy that they would like to leave. They're probably not motivated by compensation the way others are because they probably have enough money to live comfortably for a while. That's why they've retired and, and stepped out. They, they're going to want the flexibility element. They want to work with friends. We call them the Gronkowskis because they said they were retired, right? And then what happened with Rob Gronkowski, the, the American football player? He retired. His best friend Tom Brady called him and said, hey, you said you were retired. I was thinking about it too. But do you want to come back and win a Super Bowl? And he came back to play. So those are the personas. And those are the people that we have to start thinking about how we can broaden our employee value proposition to encompass those different types of people coming in and how we can focus 
on the elements of our employee value proposition that will be most appealing to those individual groups um, as we go out to attract. Is there any overlap among the personas or is it truly you are you truly fall into one category or another? I think there's a lot of opportunity to move between them. So if I think of myself as an example, I said earlier, I believe that, you know, I'm probably a traditionalist at heart because I haven't quit my job. I I have a a lower risk tolerance, if you will. I want to ensure that I know where my paycheck is coming from. But I'm also a mom. I also have a lot of responsibilities at home. And I'm burned out, like 42% of women out there, according to our Women in the Workplace research. Could I easily become a caregiver and step out? Yeah, I could. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to move between these. Could you be both at once? You could probably be both at once as well. It's a matter of, you know, how you're prioritizing the different offerings of an employer and how you would think about what it would take to bring you back. Well, certainly the framework, the the personas are a great tool uh, for for companies to to look at their employee value propositions. There are certain characteristics common across them all around flexibility, compensation, development, purpose. Apart from getting this better understanding of the talent pool through these personas, what else can companies do to address the attrition problem longer term? The way that I like to think about what employers can do is that there's four different levers they can take. There is what are article addresses, how do you attract talent that is out there and looking back in. There's also how do you retain the talent that you currently have. You need to create a culture that is welcoming, that is sticky, and that doesn't mean bringing people back into the office. So think about what it is that you can do to show employees that you care about who they are and build a culture even in a virtual environment. One of the things that I like to say is when executives tell me, aren't you saying that employees want to have their cake and eat it too? They want a strong culture and they also want to be flexible and work from wherever. Isn't that oxymoronic? I say, no. If you are dependent on being in person for your culture because you think people need to see the posters in the elevators or see people in the water cooler area, then A, it's lazy, and B, it's marketing, not a culture, because culture is how we interact with each other on a daily basis. It's how our managers lead. It's how our individuals and colleagues look out for each other. That's the core of culture, and you can do that virtually or you can do that in person. You just have to make the effort and invest and prioritize in it. But then there's two longer-term plays as well. One of them is how do you change the work that you're doing in a way that means that you don't need as many employees as you did previously. That's rethinking how you work. That's looking at some of the gains that were made over the course of the pandemic in terms of automation, in terms of use of things like the virtual check-in process when you go to a doctor's appointment or the QR menus that you see at restaurants that have started to be more widely used. And then the fourth one is how do you increase the supply of workers for the long term? How are you getting the next generation excited about your industry? How are you partnering with schools 
vocational programs, universities, colleges, to offer the scholarships, to offer the flexible work schedules to attract them. All of those pieces are going to be really important to get people interested. Bonnie, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time and joining us today. Absolutely. It was wonderful. A real treat. No matter what your persona might be, most people like to have fun, unless you're someone like me who hates fun. Right, Roberta? That's true. I mean, (laughs) I kind of wish you would lighten up a little bit, Lucia. That is exactly why we need to listen to Catherine Price, author of Power of Fun, who says fun at work should be a priority, not an afterthought. So I think that we really need to rethink how we think about fun. Less is this treat that we get to have only if everything's already going great and more as a actually almost like a tool that we can tap into to help ourselves weather the challenges that life may present us with. There's actually not a very good definition out there of what fun truly is. I came up with the idea that fun, or as I call it, true fun, is the confluence of three psychological states. It's playfulness, connection, and flow. So playfulness in the sense that you're doing things just for the sake of doing them and you're not caring too much about the outcome. And then connection, I think, is a fundamental element of fun because in the vast majority of situations or anecdotes people have shared with me, another person or another creature is involved. There's also cases in which you can be truly connected to an activity or to your authentic self or to your body, but often there's a person, even for introverts. And then flow is the psychological state in which you get so absorbed in your present experience that you lose track of time, like an athlete in the midst of a game or a musician playing a piece of music, or even when you're in the middle of a really engaging conversation. All those states are great on their own, but I've come to conclude that when we are having what people describe as fun, true fun, those three elements are present. It's playful, connected, flow. I do think that fun is much like romance, that if you try to force it too much, it's not going to happen. What you can do, though, is set the stage for it. I think if you're in a leadership role, one thing that really actually is conducive to fun is to allow your humanity to show. So to back up, when we are having fun, one of the prerequisites is that you're not putting on a facade. You are actually expressing your authentic self. You are laughing with people. You're letting down your guard and letting go of it. That is not something that often happens in a professional culture. So I think anyone in a leadership position who's able to make a joke at their own expense or you know, just have a more kind of lighthearted, less professional, less jargony kind of attitude, that's actually going to help. As adults, it does take effort to prioritize fun, but I am here to say that it is so worth it. You will be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll be more productive and creative and more resilient. And perhaps most importantly of all, you will have more fun. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.